All right, we are continuing our study of the book of Acts here on the Listener's Commentary. And in this session, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 21, verses 17 through 40. And let's just keep a few details in mind. It's spring, probably the year 57. And it's holiday season for the Jewish people. It's nearing Pentecost. Paul celebrated Passover in Philippi. His goal was to arrive at Jerusalem for Pentecost. And it seems like he's made it in time. And so Paul arrives in Jerusalem nearing Pentecost with a crew of at least seven representatives from the churches he started in the, in the Mediterranean world. And most of those representatives are Gentiles. And though it's not mentioned here, they come bringing an offering from these churches to the church in Jerusalem. And all along the journey to Jerusalem, the message keeps coming from the Spirit that bonds and afflictions await Paul in Jerusalem. Well, here in this section, Luke tells the story of what happened. And so let's look at what happens to Paul when he arrives in Jerusalem. Verse 17. And after we had arrived in Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us gladly. And so they've arrived in Jerusalem. They're welcomed warmly by the church there. Uh, And then, verse 18, the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. And so notice, Paul goes to visit James and all the elders over the entire church in the city of Jerusalem. And not only Paul goes, but notice it says, Paul went in with us. So Paul and the representatives that are traveling with him, these Gentile believers, go in with Paul to meet with James and all the elders of the Jerusalem church. And James here, we've seen earlier in Acts, particularly in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem conference, this is James, the brother of Jesus. This is James who most likely wrote the letter to James. This is James who in four or five short years is actually going to be put to death by pro-Roman Jewish aristocrats in the city of Jerusalem. And so here comes Paul to the leadership of the Jerusalem church, and he comes with the representatives, and he comes to deliver the offering to them. And though it's not mentioned in this text, uh, Paul does mention it in Acts 24, 17, and certainly he mentions it in several places in his letters, such as Romans 15, 25. And so Paul comes to meet with the leadership, with the representatives to say, My churches throughout the Greco-Roman world have sent an offering to you to take care of the poor among you. And verse 19 says, After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And so as they bring this gift and as the representatives are standing there, Paul gives a detailed report of God's work among the Gentiles. When he says among the Gentiles, it means in the lands outside of Judea, right? In the lands where the Gentiles live. That's what he means by that. And notice he he tells them one by one, relates one by one, which means a detailed report. He goes city by city, maybe church by church, specific people and specific episodes. He gives a full detailed accounting is what that phrase literally refers to of the things which God had done. And this is the way Paul always packages it in the book of Acts. It's what God did. Not what he did, but what God did through him 
um, among the Gentiles. And so he's telling the things that God did through his ministry. And when James and the elders heard about it, verse 20, they began glorifying God. In other words, they hear the report of God's work through Paul and his team, and they, they glorify God for it. They had given Paul their support for his ministry back in Acts 15, and Paul has checked in a time uh, or two since then, and now he's checking in again, and they rejoice in what God has done among the Gentiles, in the Gentile lands through Paul's ministry, and they're glorifying God. And then they say this, after they glorify God, they also express a concern. Look at the second half of verse 20. It says this, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are zealous for the law. And so their concern, at least the initial statement, has to do with all the Jewish believers there in Jerusalem. And the city presently is packed with extra Jews because it's Passover and Pentecost season. And so there's extra thousands upon thousands of Jews there. Um, there might even be some other Jewish believers who have come into the city. But certainly there in Jerusalem, you have a fairly large um, Jewish church in the city of Jerusalem. And so that's what they say. Look at all the thousands of believers here in the city of Jerusalem. So their concern begins with the Jewish believers. And uh, James, or whoever is the spokesman, we're guessing James because he frequently seems to be the spokesman, uh, they are all zealous for the law. So they're passionate about the Jewish law. Let's keep reading what, what is said to Paul in verse 21. And they have been told about you. They've heard some rumors. They've heard some reports about Paul. And here's the reports they've heard, that you are telling all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. So here's their concern. We've got thousands upon thousands of Jewish believers here in the city of Jerusalem, and they've heard some rumors about you. What have they specifically been told? Well, they've been told that you're telling all the Jews out there uh, in the Gentile lands, to abandon Moses. That word translated abandon is uh, literally apostasia, which is the word we get our word apostasy from, to apostatize from Moses, to deconvert from following Moses. Uh, they've heard that you're telling them not to circumcise their children, so to give up circumcision, and you've, you're telling them uh, not to walk according to the customs, the customs that have been handed down to them as Jews from the days of Moses. And so they're hearing these reports about Paul. Now listen to those reports, and we need to ask ourselves the question, are these reports true? And the answer is no, they're false. Paul is not telling Jewish believers to abandon Moses, give up circumcision, or uh, don't walk according to the customs. He's not telling them that. What does Paul believe about the law of Moses and circumcision and, and all of that? Well, when you read Paul's letters closely and carefully, what you realize is, yes, Paul says some very direct things about the law, and Paul does say some very direct things about circumcision. But his primary concern is with forcing Gentile believers to have to keep the law and to practice circumcision, and to keep the customs. Paul will 
uh, fight tooth and nail to make sure that's not happening. That's what the book of Galatians is all about. That's really what the Jerusalem conference that's recorded in Acts 15 was all about. And so for the Gentile believers, no, let's not impose upon them the law of Moses, circumcision, and all of that. But what about the Jewish believers? Well, Paul never tells them that they can't keep their customs. Paul never tells them to give up circumcision. And so that's where the conflict is here with these rumors. That's why they're false. Nevertheless, because Paul has said some pretty direct things about circumcision and about the law, both in his writings and therefore we can presume in his teachings, you could see where... Uh, some people would get the idea that Paul was teaching those kinds of things and would, would say that, report that to the Jewish believers there in Jerusalem. Because Paul does believe that the people of God are now formed in Christ and not in Torah. And he says that in his letters. Paul does believe that Jesus is the culmination of the law, that everything the law was aiming at and working towards finds its climax or its culmination in Jesus himself. And thus, God's people now are found in Jesus and they are sanctified by the Spirit, not so much by the Torah. So Paul has said these kinds of things and thus... Uh, you can imagine either people who are opposed to Paul because they don't believe or people who haven't listened closely to Paul could take what he said and twist it as saying, so you Jews don't need to keep the law. You Jews should abandon Moses. You Jews should give up circumcision. But Paul has not actually taught that and Paul does not believe that. But that's what's being rumored, and that causes the leadership here in the Jerusalem church in Acts 21 to be concerned. So they have a suggestion. Look at verse 22. So what's to be done? Since they've heard this report and since it's causing some trouble and some concern, what should we do? Well, let's keep reading. They will certainly hear that you've come, and thus that could be a source of tension or conflict, right? That's the implication. Therefore, verse 23, do as we tell you. We have four men who have a vow upon themselves. Take them along and purify yourselves together with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. And then everyone will know that there is nothing to what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also conform keeping the law. This is a fascinating proposal. The proposal is there's four men who are under a vow. The vow will involve shaving their heads at the proper time which means it's probably a Nazarite vow. You can read about the Nazarite vow in Numbers chapter 6. And the, the proposal is that Paul should, in some sense, purify himself and, uh, and then, at the proper time, pay their expenses to bring their vow to an end. Uh, and if it is a Nazarite vow, those expenses are pretty hefty. To end a Nazarite vow... Uh, required offering, three different offerings, a male lamb, a female lamb, and a ram, plus appropriate grain and drink offerings. And so for four people, that'd be a pretty hefty sum. Not only that, their proposal involves Paul purifying himself so that he could participate in some regards in this vow with them. And the purification rite, probably, we're not totally sure what all is going on here. It's a little unclear because we're not given all the details, but 
Uh, most likely, the, the purification they're asking Paul to do is the standard Jewish purification. If they've been in Gentile lands, they've had any action with Gentiles, that they need to purify themselves before they're free to worship in the temple. So that's probably what we're talking about. So Paul goes through the purification ritual. He agrees to pay uh, the vow for these men who have taken what appears to be a Nazarite vow. That's what the proposal is. And they invite him to do that so that Paul can demonstrate that he's willing to keep the customs of Moses, the keeping the law, it says. Now, should Paul do this or not? That's the question, right? And for us sitting here looking back, we're like, of course not. Paul's free from the law. He doesn't need to do that. No way. Like, why would Paul even do that? But that's not how Paul viewed it. So let's keep reading and see what happens here. And so they give this proposal. And then they say this, but verse 25, regarding the Gentiles who have believed, we sent a letter referring back to the letter in Acts chapter 15 that described the conclusions of the Jerusalem conference, right? So referring back to that, and here we are about 57, and that letter was uh, detailed about seven years earlier, so it's been a while since then. But we sent a letter having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what is strangled, and from sexual immorality. The same four things that was decided at the Jerusalem conference. So they recall that. That's all we really expect of the Gentiles. So what does Paul do? Well, look at verse 26. Then Paul took along the men, the four men who are under a vow, and the next day, after purifying himself together with them, he went into the temple giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. So Paul agrees to their proposal. Um, he takes them in. The very next day, he goes through whatever purification ritual was needed for the situation and the circumstances. So he goes through that. He enters into the temple. He presumably meets with a priest, explains the vow they're under, explains, explains the purification that he's taking, that they need to take or whatever. So whatever the details of the customs were, he works all those details out with a priest in the temple and agrees upon the time set until the sacrifice would be given uh, to end their vow. Fascinating, isn't it, that Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, the defender of people's freedom from the law, would, in this case, uh, take upon himself to go through purification rites and uh, involve himself in sacrifices in the temple with these men. And why is that? Well, we have to, again, understand Paul's theology more accurately than maybe sometimes we do. Paul had said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that to the Jews, he became like a Jew so that he might win some. And to the Gentiles, he became like the Gentiles that he might win some. And Paul is willing to adjust how he interacts with people depending on the people he's with. Um, and the reason he can do that is because he has freedom in Christ. And so he's willing when he's in Gentile lands to live like a Gentile, to eat the food of Gentiles. But when he's in Jewish lands, he's willing to act like a Jew. And he is a Jew by upbringing, and he's not opposed to the customs of Moses. Um, what he is opposed to is requiring them for justification. That's what he's opposed to. But as far as seeing them as uh, useful to devotion or 
cultural heritage and customs that speak of people's uh, devotion before God, such as a Nazarite vow was, Paul is willing to participate in them. As F.F. Bruce has said, the truly free man is not in bondage to his freedom. And so Paul is so free that he is not in bondage to his freedom, and therefore he can participate in this purification rite and this Nazarite vow with these four men. And so he chooses to do that. And so he's made the proper arrangements in the temple with these four men. And here's what happens. Verse 27, when the seven days were almost over. So whatever the details were of their specific purification, there was going to be a seven-day period of purification and whatnot until they were going to offer their sacrifice. And so when the seven days were almost over, some Jews from Asia, upon seeing him, Paul, in the temple, began to stir up the crowd and laid hands on him. So Paul's in the temple, and there are some Jews from Asia, presumably from Ephesus. They're going to recognize Trophimus the Ephesian. And so Paul had spent a long time there. So they recognize Paul, they recognize Trophimus, and they jump to a conclusion, and they begin to stir up the crowd. Verse 28 then says, they're crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who instructs everyone everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. And so they immediately accuse Paul of being against the law, against Jews, against the temple. And then uh, they accuse him of bringing a Gentile into the temple and defiling the temple. If Paul had indeed done that, then the temple would have to go through a whole dedication and purification ceremony, much like happened during the days of uh, the Maccabees, right? And why did they accuse him of that? Well, verse 29, for they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with them, and they thought that Paul had brought him into the temple. They just assumed that. Paul is such a renegade, such a rebel, such a problem, that surely if Trophimus is with him, he probably brought Trophimus into the temple. And by temple here, they mean the temple proper, not the larger, great, grander temple courts, the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles were allowed in there. That would mean, when they say brought him into the temple, brought him into the area where Gentiles were not allowed to go. In fact, there was a short wall around the temple proper that had inscriptions in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew explaining that no Gentile was to go beyond that barrier and if they did, they had themselves to blame for their death that followed. That's how serious they took bringing Gentiles or Gentiles entering into the temple itself. So this accusation is a serious accusation. It is the kind of accusation that's going to get Jewish people all worked up. And so they throw this accusation out there to the crowd in the temple. And we need to remember that it's holiday season. It's Pentecost. So you have... The, the, the temple is jam-packed with people. The city is jam-packed with people. And they're all there celebrating one of the most important Jewish holidays, Pentecost. And Pentecost, one of the things that it had become a celebration of by this time period was a celebration of the giving of the Old Testament law. And so, man, it's not just a Thanksgiving feast for their food, but it's a Thanksgiving feast for the law. And so these accusations, he's against the law, he's against the temple, he's brought a Gentile to the temple in the midst of a holiday celebration in a jam-packed temple, 
this is serious. And then not only that, it's the year 57 or so. Like we're, we're at the almost the, the peak. We're reaching the peak of the groundswell of Jewish nationalism in just eight or nine short years, the full-on Jewish revolt against the Romans is going to be underway and the city will be sieged and all of that. So we're like, we're in a, a situation where these kinds of accusations is going to stir up the crowd. And that's what happens. So notice verse 30. Then the whole city was provoked and the people rushed together and taking a hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple and immediately the doors were shut. And so Paul is somewhere in the temple proper, not just the temple courts at large, but he's somewhere maybe in the court of women or even further into the temple proper where worship can happen. He is inside that short wall with those warnings around it. And the whole city is stirred up by this accusation from these Asian Jews. They grab Paul, they drag him out of the temple, and they shut all the doors into the temple proper so that uh, nobody could go in there and uh, to keep any Gentiles out. And also just as a symbolic action is, no, this is our territory. Um, Verse 31, while they were intent on killing him. This is how serious it got and how quickly. The crowd is upset. These accusations appeal to their nationalistic and Jewish pride. Uh, and so their goal is to kill Paul. They're going to drag him out uh, and they're beating him. They want to take him out somewhere perhaps and stone him, right? Um, there is chaos now in the larger outer courts of the temple. So they're intent on killing him. And while that's happening, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. So if you look at a graphic of the temple of Jerusalem as it looked roughly in the first century, you'll see off to one end of it a, a series of four towers. That was the Roman barracks in Jerusalem. Um, and they would bring extra forces into the city for holiday season, specifically just to kind of keep this stuff under control so that things wouldn't get out of control. Because the city got so crowded, they would bring extra troops into the city to uh, really kind of maintain peace and order during the holidays. And that Roman barracks bumped right up against the temple and actually had access to the court of the Gentiles. There was some stairwells that went up into uh, the Roman barracks or came out of the Roman barracks. And so here's the city in confusion. The temple, there's a riot breaking out in the temple. Uh, there are watchmen in the in the barracks on those towers look keeping an eye on the temple. They see things you know, getting out of control. They send word to the commander. Uh, there in the barracks. And here's what happens. Verse 32, immediately he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to the crowd. So the commander, we get his name later uh, in the book of Acts. His name is Claudius Lysias. Um, he takes some soldiers and centurions. Notice the plural. So at least two centurions, two leaders, and maybe those centurions then took their soldiers. They're the ones that are in charge of the soldiers, which means we're talking a couple hundred soldiers. Like they recognize things could get out of hand really quickly and they don't take this lightly. So they come in with a full show of force of multiple centurions and 
there's thus probably several hundred soldiers coming into the temple immediately to try to disperse the crowd and get things under control. And so they arrive um, and notice what happens midway through verse 32. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So the Jews were beating Paul there in the temple. Uh, all these soldiers rush in and immediately the people stop because they recognize, ooh, we've caught the eye of the authorities. And verse 33, then the commander came up, took hold of Paul himself, ordered that he be bound with two chains, and began asking who he was and what he had done. And so the commander doesn't know what's going on. He just knows that Paul is the catalyst for all this. So he seizes Paul, has him bound with two chains, put in chains, and then begins to try to figure out what's going on. And so he starts asking people, what, who is this guy? What's going on here? Uh, verse 34, but among the crowd, some were shouting one thing, some another. And when he couldn't find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be brought back to the barracks. And so He's, he's trying to figure out what's going on. The crowd is so worked up and, and in such a fever pitch that they're shouting all sorts of different things. And the commander can't get any accurate intel. So he's like, let's just arrest him. Take Paul back to the barracks. Well, verse 35, they're heading then out of the temple. They get to the stairs that lead up into the fortress of Antonia, the Roman barracks there that uh, are right next to the temple. And verse 35, when Paul got to the stairs, it came about that he was carried by the soldiers because the violence of the mob. Notice how serious this is and how crazy this is. You have thousands of Jews in the temple. They're so violent. They're so hostile. They're so angry. They're probably angry that the Romans are taking away Paul because they wanted to kill him because he's such a blasphemer and so awful that the literally the soldiers are carrying Paul. Uh, They've got him up above their heads and they're trying to get him up the stairs and out of harm's way. And so they're carrying Paul, verse 36, for the multitude of people kept following him, shouting, away with him, away with him. And they want uh, Paul to be done away with. So the soldiers are carrying Paul up the stairs as Paul, verse 37, was about to be brought into the barracks. So they get up the stairs towards the top of the stairs and they're about to interest the fortress of Antonia. Paul said to the commander, may I say something to you? And so he respectfully says something to him. He says it in Greek because the commander wouldn't know Aramaic, right? So he says it in Greek and the commander replied with, do you know Greek? Then you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. Now we've got to do a little bit of work here because I don't think this translation really captures what's going on. Plus, we got to know who this Egyptian is and some background stuff. So when Paul speaks in Greek to this guy, for whatever reason, Claudius Lysias, the commander, immediately makes an assumption then about who Paul is. And the assumption is that he's an Egyptian uh, revolutionary. Now, this translation that I'm working out of says, then you are, you are not the Egyptian, but it would be better translated as, are you the Egyptian? He's assuming that Paul is the Egyptian. And uh, Egyptians typically spoke Greek. And so perhaps that's what motivates the assumption. And there's recently been some activity by some Egyptian revolutionary. And this Egyptian revolutionary is actually mentioned in Josephus. Josephus says that he led 30,000 men out into the wilderness and was going to lead some revolt and he would see 
that the walls would fall and they'd be able to conquer the Romans. Well, the governor Felix actually killed 400 of his followers, captured 200 and scattered the rest, but they didn't capture the Egyptian. Uh, and that had happened just a, a few years earlier. And so it seems like what uh, Claudius Lysias, the commander here in Acts 21, is assuming is the Egyptian is back and he's caught himself a real prize. Like, ah, I did what the governor Felix wouldn't. My commanding officers will be so proud of me and all of that. That seems like what he's assuming. One other little note is the word translated assassins uh, is sicare, which comes from this word that means a short dagger. And, and whether this is uh, referring to kind of like a formal group of them or not, it's not sure, but there was uh, a well-known practice or even group of people who were kind of known as dagger men. And they would keep this short little dagger in their cloaks. And every now and then when they would get a chance, they would like, you know, try to off a Roman uh, soldier or something like that as their protest against being under Roman occupation and as their revolt against their authority. So this Egyptian revolutionary was involved with people whose goals were to destroy and defeat the Romans. And for whatever reason, the commander here in Acts 21 immediately assumes that Paul is this Egyptian. Well, Paul wants to clarify, no, that's not who I am. So verse 39, he says, but Paul said, I'm a Jew. I'm not an Egyptian. I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city. So he immediately clarifies who he is. I'm a Jew. I'm originally from Tarsus, explaining why he knows Greek so well, because he grew up in a Greek-speaking university town, Tarsus. And Tarsus is a major city, no insignificant city. It's an important city, well-known. And if Paul means by a citizen of of no insignificant city. If he means that in the formal sense, which most likely he probably does, it doesn't just mean he grew up there. It means he's a citizen. And citizenship in a city like Tarsus was typically reserved for somebody who had uh, paid for some great public project or great public work, which would, again, speak of the wealth and prestige of Paul's family of origin there in the city of Tarsus. So Paul clarifies that he's not the Egyptian. He clarifies who he is. And then he says, I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. So here's this uh, like violent mob that's out to kill Paul. And Paul wants to speak to them. Uh, he wants to really share his story with them as a way of sharing the gospel with them. And so he asked the commander to speak to the people. Well, the commander gives him permission, verse 40. When, when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs. So now he's up above the people. The people are down below in the temple and he's on the stairs. He motions for the people to quiet down with his hand. So he silences the crowd. And when, when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect saying. So he's going to speak to them probably in Aramaic, not Hebrew. Uh, Aramaic was the language of the people and the word translated Hebrew here also referred to Aramaic. So maybe Hebrew, but it's more likely the common language of the people, Aramaic. Now what's funny is the Romans, Claudius Lysias, doesn't speak Aramaic. So he's not going to know what Paul is saying. So we'll have to pay attention to that. And that's where chapter 21 ends. This is one of those absolute worst chapter breaks in the New Testament. Chapter 21 ends literally in the middle of a sentence as Paul's about ready to give a speech. And it reminds us 
that the chapters were put in later and they weren't put in by the original author or the original right writers. And so this is a bad chapter break, but it's a good place for us to stop at this point since there's so much to cover here and so much to cover in Paul's speech. And so there's Paul standing on the stairs of the fortress of Antonia, overlooking the temple of Jerusalem with an angry crowd that he's silenced down and he's now going to speak to them. And what he's going to speak to them is he's going to share his testimony with them in hopes to get them to understand who he is, but more important, to, in hopes to lead them to who Jesus is.